Today's scripture reading is from Genesis 9, verses 18 to 28. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, "'Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers.' He also said, "'Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant.' After the flood, Noah lived 350 years." This is the word of the Lord. Lord. I, um, yeah. How many of you, when you are together in a new group or a new place, have had to play what they call icebreakers or get to know you games? Yeah? I mean, yeah. So it's a, pl- a place where you share something. And, and one of the common ones, in particularly, is for you to share an embarrassing moment, even your most embarrassing moment. And then people are going to guess and see who it actually is. Now, if we're all honest, we never really ever share our most embarrassing moment in that setting. We kind of go down the list and we get to like number three, maybe number five, maybe even number 10, and that's the one that we share. Because if we were to share the most embarrassing moment, then we know that people would look at us and we would feel that shame that we felt the first time that event ever happened. Now, we're getting ready to go talk about fear not, and we're coming off of Jonah, uh, our study that we've done in Jonah. And in Jonah, we've noticed a couple of things taking place. One is that there are people in Jonah that repent quicker than Jonah, the person who should be repenting. And kind of looking back, why did Jonah not want to repent? And we see in chapter 4 that we ended last week is that he was angry. He was angry with God, and in a sense, he was saying, I don't have anything to repent of. But I dare say most of us don't walk around in that way when we've done something that we are ashamed of. Most of us feel that shame. Most of us wonder, how are we going to be covered again? And and so today, we're going into this passage that seems awfully strange. I mean, it's about a drunk guy who passes out naked and his three boys. It's great if you want to shock people. There's some titles that you can use that would really get people's attention. But I think it's really a story for us to look at. This this thing that historically happened to Noah and his boys helps us to understand how we need to interact with shame and what our call is in that. 
So maybe it's good for us to have a definition first. So Ed Welch is an author, and he wrote a book called Shame Interrupted. And in that book, he defines it this way. Shame is a deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you, and you feel exposed or humiliated. Or to strengthen the language, he says, you are disgraced because you acted less than human. You were treated as if you were less than human. Or you were associated with something less than human. And there are witnesses. So Noah, this man who had preached about safety to all the world around him, saying that there is a flood that is coming, that God is moving in destruction towards us because of how we keep living in a violent way. Sound familiar to Jonah a little bit? And Noah is calling out and nobody turns, nobody changes, nobody moves away, nobody repents. All think that they're doing just what they need to do. So Noah gets on a boat. He builds this gigantic boat being ridiculed and he goes and he sells and God delivers them and he lands and things start to be back to normal and he begins to plant things and he grows some grapes. And I don't know what was going on in Noah's life, but all of a sudden he has just a bit too much. No, he didn't have just a bit too much wine. He had a lot of wine. So much so that he passes out. Now, do you think he was proud of that when he came to? No, he felt shame. We know that he felt shame because he responded to shame in three ways that we might actually respond to shame. So what does shame cause us when we begin to feel it, when we begin to see it? One of the ways that we respond to shame is that we retreat. We see that happen with Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve sin, the very first thing they do is they go and hide. They don't want to be seen. They don't want to be found out. They're like, God's going to come around because he comes around every day and he's going to be looking for us. And so it's best for us to hide. So when we experience shame, one of our first responses is to retreat. To not be seen, to not engage in the community around us, to not be engaged with those people who maybe have seen why we should feel shame. The second thing that we can do is we can reinvent that thing that has caused us shame. So we might be doing something that we all of a sudden start feeling shame about, and instead of retreating, what we decide to do is rename that thing something different so that it doesn't cause us shame. In Isaiah, he puts it this way. As he's prophesying, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. We have this place where we're like, I don't want to feel that anymore. And the best way for me not to feel that shame, that that turning away is not to retreat, but is to rename it, to call it something else. See, that thing that I'm doing that causes me shame, that's actually good. So it won't cause me shame anymore. Or we're like Noah. Noah responds to his shame by retaliating. We see that when he comes to, he turns his focus and the shame that he feels onto Ham. Now, there's a place of discipline that needs to take place here for Ham, and we'll get to that. But what 
Noah does here is he brings a curse down on his boy. Here's the funny thing about it. He was already the one who was going to be the servant because he was the youngest. He wasn't necessarily going to be top tier among those three boys. And so Noah doesn't curse Ham. He curses Ham's son, Canaan. He says, you're already here, but your brother might. Canaan, who is the firstborn in your family, might. So, so you, since you did this to me, this is what you get. This is payback double. See, he's feeling shame. He, he knows that something has gone awry in his life. He, he knows that something's off. He has become less human. And so instead of engaging in that and seeing it as a call towards repentance, Noah retaliates. Now let me say this verse is often used, these passages, this story has often been used to subjugate different people. In the past, people have looked at this and said, oh, the curse of Ham and the curse of Canaan is for us to be able to have slaves. And then they even go further and say, this was God's curse. Let me be very clear. This is Noah, a man in shame, saying a curse onto his son and his son's son, his grandson, because he is afraid to deal with his own guilt and shame about what has gone on. God has nothing to do with that curse. And I would dare say that since God has nothing to do with that curse, that curse is irrelevant. Except for us to see how our own hearts and how Noah's heart at that point was turned away from himself and onto somebody else in retaliation. So we need to look at our own hearts as we gather in this place and say, how do I react to my shame? What is my desire in this? Do I retreat away from people when I'm feeling this shame? Do I try and reinvent the thing that I'm shameful of? Or do I retaliate? Do I pick somebody else to be angry at? Because it's so hard to be angry with myself. Or painful to be angry with myself. But we also need to look at how we then engage people who are resting in shame. And we see two examples of that. The first example is Ham. Ham goes in and he, he goes into his father's tent and he sees his dad laid out. And he comes back out and he tells his brothers. Now we don't know what he tells his brothers, but we know it must be something bad. He didn't go out and tell his brothers, hey guys, we need to go help dad. That's not what he said. What, he pro what they probably said is he probably came out and said, hey guys, get a load of dad. You're not going to believe what is going on in there. Pops got a little tipsy. Or perhaps he might even have gone further and said, I can't believe our stupid father. Can you believe that he had made it through the flood and yet here he is not trusting God and relying on something else to give him peace? And he used it so much that he got drunk it passed out. We don't know what it was that Ham says, but what we do know, it was something that caused pain. It was not the appropriate response. 
It was a place of taking the shame and piling on. It sounds a lot like cancel culture to me. That place today where people are held to account to one thing that they've done or multiple things that they've done and not given a road to repentance or forgiveness. It's a place where we look at people and we say that bad event or that bad word or those bad things define everything about who you are. You are no more than the sum of all the negativity that you've done. And we're going to keep you in that place. My favorite theologian, one of my favorite theologians is Nick Cave. He's a musician. He has a great blog site called the Red Hand File. And people send him questions and he answers them. Now, Nick's not necessarily a follower of the way. But he was definitely raised in places where the way of Christ was talked about. And so someone asked him about cancel culture. And this was his response. Francis, you've asked about cancel culture. And as far as I can see, cancel culture is mercy's antithesis. Political correctness has grown to become the unhappiest religion in the world. It's once honorable attempt to reimagine our society in a more equitable way now embodies all the worst aspects that religion has to offer and none of its beauty. Moral certainty and self-righteousness shorn even of the capacity of redemption. It is quite literally bad religion run amok. Cancel culture refuses to engage with uncomfortable ideas and has an asphyxiating effect on the creative soul of society. Compassion is the primary experience, the heart event out of which emerges the genius and generosity of the imagination. Creativity is an act of love that can knock up against the most foundational beliefs and in doing so bring forth fresh ways of seeing the world. This is both the function and glory of art and ideas. He's a musician, remember. A force that finds its meaning in the cancellation of these difficult ideas hampers the creative spirit of society and strikes at a complex and diverse nature of its culture. But this is where we are. We are a culture in transition, and it may be that we're heading towards a more equal society. I don't know. But what essential values will we forfeit in the process? See, he looks out at Nick Cave and he says, look, this inability for us to move beyond, to hold that this is it, this is the only way that you can be defined, and we can't move any further, squelches compassion and society, creativity, imagination. It closes debate. It causes us, well, it causes us to retreat from one another, to reinvent the very things that we say and then to retaliate towards each other. Oh, it's just shame in a different name. And so there are those of us who have walked with people who are hurting, who are recognizing the brokenness of their lives, and we have stepped in a way that has belittled them, but not empowered them. Maybe it's not been so bad that we've said, oh, you're not worthy, or you aren't able, or we've even sort of said, I'm glad I've never done that. And so we need to recognize that we have the spirit of Ham sometimes. We mock and we cancel 
and we don't allow for a road to redemption and repentance. But Shem and Japheth do something different. They hear this from their brother, and instead of laughing, instead of joining in, they go and they get a blanket and they put it on their shoulders, and they walk backwards into the place and they lay it over their fathers, not looking at him, not seeing him, and moving beyond, walking back out, giving their father the dignity that he deserves, seeing him from a place of mercy. Now, this isn't a cover-up of what has happened. This is a redressing of who Noah is. This is not a place where they're saying, we're going to pretend like this didn't take place. They're saying, this is happening, it's happening now, and we want to engage in it proactively to help move our father out of that place of shame. We want to redress him. Put some clothes on the man. So that then when he comes to, he will be able to engage with us as co-people as humans, as those who are created and loved by God. Interestingly enough, Nick Cave in that same blog post was asked about what mercy is. Probably asked differently and he answered them at the same time. He says, mercy is the value that should be at the heart of any functioning and tolerant society. Mercy ultimately acknowledges that we are all imperfect and in doing so allows us the oxygen to breathe, to feel protected within a society through our mutual fallibility. Without mercy, a society loses its soul and devours itself. Mercy allows us the ability to engage openly in free-ranging conversations, an expression of collective discovery towards the common good. If mercy is our guide, we have a safety net of mutual consideration. And we can, to quote Oscar Wilde, play gracefully with ideas. How amazing for us to be those who walk backwards into people's lives with the covering to bring over them. But how can we do that? (laughs) How is that even possible? What gives us the strength or the ability when most of the time we're dealing with our own shame and trying to walk through that? Well, we remember this, for those of us who are in Christ, for those of us who are walking this journey as as Jesus guides us and directs us, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 this, that Christ becomes unrighteousness so that we can have his righteousness. That Christ moves in a way that breaks down our shame, that breaks down the things that have brought us shame. And he renews us and says, I will take all those things on. There's a beautiful passage in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10. Isaiah, again, is prophesying here, and he says these beautiful words. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. That we as a people who are those that are trying to follow after Jesus, the example that we are given is that Jesus has taken everything upon himself so that we could be all of who he is. And in becoming all that he, who he is, then we have the ability to be those who redress people when they are covered with shame. 
had a good friend who was going through a really difficult time in his life. He was trying to actually come back to faith and figure out what it meant. And he got connected to another great guy who basically when guys were in that place, he would have them move into his house. And so this guy moved into his house, and that first day that they're there, they kind of go through, why are you here? Why are you not with your family? Why are you not in these places? Why? But you're with me. What's going on? And he has this really safe place that those men can kind of share with the brokenness of their lives. And then he sends them to bed, and they're wrecked, right? They're looking at themselves, and all of a sudden those thoughts of, but it's not all my fault. It's some of their faults as well, right? Let me rename this. It's not all on me. It's on them. Or that retreat. Like, what am I doing here? I can just leave. I'm not held hostage in this house. Or even, who are you? How are you so good that you're able to do this, right? They're all running through their heads. But in the morning, they wake up. And he said he went down to breakfast. And as he was sitting at breakfast there, this other gentleman walked out with this old tattered robe. Not a beautiful robe, but an old tattered robe. And he walked behind him and he said, Dear brother, I want you to feel the righteousness of Christ put upon you. All those things that you talked about last night, all those things that you're dealing with, all the feel, put it on. And he said, It's the ugliest, most disgusting robe, but the most beautiful thing that I've ever had on my body. We are called to be robe bearers for each other. To not allow ourselves to sit. Listen, shame is the impetus of us seeing our need for repentance. But it is not the destination. But we need each other to put on the robe of righteousness for each other. We have to turn, and not just turn our backs to one another, but turn face to face. And bring forth the righteousness that is Christ. So that we can then engage with the world around us. With love and mercy and grace. Let me pray for us. Father, let us hold tight to who you are and what you have done. The grace that you have given to us. That you've released us so that we can care for one another well. Show us how to do that. If there's anything that has been said today that's not of you, let it fly away. Let it burn up. Let it not be here. But if there is something that is from you today, let it take root in our hearts so that it will bring glory to you and that we can do good works that you have called us to do before the foundation of the world. In Jesus' holy, precious, mighty name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and respond by